hands together with enthusiastic celebration for the wonderful, my beautiful Wendy Halsam. Thank you. Thank you so much for that warm welcome. It's great to be back. Really, it is. And um, I have so much to share that it just, sometimes my heart just wants to burst. <laughs> We've been doing a very exciting series this summer, The Apostles. The Apostles, the sent ones, they were men with a mission. And it would have been a mission impossible, except they were ordinary people, but they'd encountered an extraordinary God. So it wasn't Mission Impossible. It was Mission Very Possible, and it happened. It's an exciting story. Their lives were never the same after they met Jesus. And as I said in the previous talk, their world was turned not upside down, but right side up. Things started to make sense, and things started to happen. Remember how we looked at the crowds who gathered at Jesus' early ministry? There were mothers and fathers. There were teenagers. There were little kids running around. There were the oldies hobbling along, not wanting to miss a word. There were the lepers who were maybe at a distance cringing because they weren't allowed to come close. But so many of their lot had been healed by Jesus, and they had smooth skin, just like a baby's. So these lepers were getting as close as they could because they wanted to be healed too. But then they were the skeptics, the people who weren't really sure about this Jesus. And they were just looking with very critical eyes, just taking it all in, full of questions. But also in the midst, there were people who had been healed, people who had been lame or blind, and they couldn't keep quiet. They were jumping around, and I mean, what a time it must have been there. <laughs> and lots of people who were desperately ill, who were trying to get close just to touch his robe, because they knew the power there, they would be healed. It was an extraordinary time. And I just think it's amazing that as the crowds gathered, he taught with such authority as nobody had ever taught before. But not only were his words full of power, he lived the truth that he taught with such a purity and strength that everybody was moved. It was amazing, too, that there was such a warmth about Jesus, and he was so relaxed, that all the kids came and clambered all over him. <laughs> they wanted to jump into his lap. They wanted to be cuddled in his arms while he was talking. And you can imagine these disciples thinking, this is definitely not for the rabbi, for the, for the Lord. And they were trying to shoo away these little children. And the children just came skipping joyfully into his presence. And Jesus said, no, don't. Don't chase them away. Let the children come to me because of such is the kingdom of God. This is what the kingdom of heaven is like. You must be like little children. Ouch, can you imagine that with these disciples? It was an extraordinary time to be there. Jesus was invited by people of all different social classes for meals. So he ate with the publicans and the tax collectors and the sinners. They were the very lowest of the social scale. But interestingly, he was also invited to dinner by the Pharisees, 
the ultra-religious lot. And they welcomed him too. And it was at one of these dinner parties that Mary came and poured that alabaster, broke the jar and poured that expensive perfume over his feet because it was a sign of the embalming of the approaching death. So basically what I'm saying is that he taught, he preached, he healed, but over all, there was the shadow of the cross because his mission on this trip was not just to heal and preach and set free the captives, but it was to die. His mission was to come as a sacrifice, to take on himself everything that separated us from knowing God intimately and personally, and to die as the lamb, and then to be raised for glory, to come back again, and this time in power. <laughs> so the shadow of the cross was over all. And he chose together his band of 12, as we talked about before, and interestingly, when you look at Mark chapter 3, 14 and 15, it says he chose the 12 to be with him and then to preach and to cast out the demons. And I've often meditated on that because we're so busy getting active, doing things in the Lord's name. And, but he chose them to be with him. And as they were with him day by day, it was this transforming presence, the intimacy of the living God that changed their lives irreparably. So those were the merry band, the 12. Now out of the 12, there were the three, Peter, James, and John. Oopsie, just a sec, I'll put that there. And I thought it was only fair because in the past, we've looked at Peter and we've looked at John, the disciple that Jesus loved. So I thought today we would look at James, the one we haven't got to of the three. Remember these three were almost like the inner circle. They went through many very special experiences with Jesus that he took them apart. For instance, in Gethsemane, when he was praying, he asked them to wait up with him and pray. And he was sweating drops of blood. He knew that the moment of his death was coming where he would be that sacrifice. But they just fell asleep. Well, those were these great guys. <laughs> but you know, the Bible is so real. Over time, they were all transformed into strong, dedicated apostles of God. So looking at James, the New Testament actually mentions four and possibly six different Jameses. I know Richard spoke about looking at Thomas and, and Philip and these characters, and you think, well, there was just one. But as you dig deep, you realize that there were so many. The reason for this is it doesn't always say with James if it was James, son of Zebedee, or James, son of Alphaeus, or James, brother of Joseph. Sometimes, like on the Mount of Transfiguration, it's just James. So you don't really know which one it was. But I've narrowed it down to three definite Jameses who walked and talked with Jesus, who knew him day by day, who were there during the ministry, who were around at his death and who saw him face to face after his amazing resurrection from the dead. He actually appeared to over 500 people over 40 days. Did you know that? After he rose, it's amazing. Let's have a look at Acts 1 and verses 8 to 14. And I'm reading from the, the NIV. You will receive power, this is Jesus speaking, when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Isn't it remarkable? 
These three closest to him fell asleep at the time of great trial. And here he's saying, you will be my witnesses to the end of the earth. After this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus, who has been taken from you into heaven, will come back in the same way you've seen him go into heaven. Then the apostles returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives, a Sabbath day's walk from the city. When they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying. That's the upper room where lights happened. <laughs> Those present were Peter, John, James, one of our Jameses, and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, another one of our Jameses, son of Alphaeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas, son of James. They all joined together constantly in prayer, along with the woman, and with Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. And therein lies our third, James. Because there are several references in Scripture that say that James was a brother of Jesus, an earthly brother. Well, we know that Mary was filled with the Holy Spirit and conceived as a virgin and gave birth to Jesus. And then she entered into marriage with Joseph, and there were other half-brothers, James, Joseph, Jude, and Simon. So those are the, that's the one reference in Scripture where all of our three Jameses appear. Let's look first at James, son of Zebedee. He's called James the Greater, and he is quite a character. I like to sort of think of him in the early days as the sort of brassy, bold and brassy James. He was the strong man, James the Greater. He was the brother of John, one of the first two, that, the two disciples that Jesus called, James and John, mending their nets with their father Zebedee, and Jesus called them. And he actually had a, a, an interesting nickname for these two, which we read about in Mark chapter 3. He calls them sons of thunder, or Boanerges. And you think, well, why did he do that? But there are a couple of incidents in the New Testament which show exactly why these were the sons of thunder. They were hot-headed youngsters, these two. They were, had thunder-like qualities, really sort of fiery. In Luke chapter 9, we read that Jesus and the disciples were going through Samaria on their way to Jerusalem, and they wanted accommodation for the night. And there was a lot of tension with the Jews and the, the Samaritans, Samaritans at that point, and they couldn't find accommodation. So in verse 54, we get James and John saying to Jesus, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven and just destroy the lot? And I think that's just remarkable. See, these two had seen him work these amazing miracles where the blind had seen and the deaf were hearing and the lame were leaping. And they thought, you know, I can almost see this in Steven Spielberg terms. You know, all these people are giving us a bit of trouble. Why don't we just go, sorry, the sound, and just zap them, you know, just pow, deal with them, splat. Jesus said, no, that's not what we're going to do. And they went to another town, and they had accommodation for the night. But you see, this was the kind of chap that uh, James the Great was. Very bold, very impetuous, very thunderous. 
So that was the sons of Zebedee, the father. Now wait until you hear about the mother. His mother was called Salome. And I think she was one of these sort of delicious, pushy Jewish mama types. Because, and I think there are these pushy mama types in all different nationalities and cultures. You know, you get the Italian mamas, you get the South African mamas. You, but she wanted the best for her boys. And she asked to speak to Jesus separately. And he, did, he spoke to her on the side. She bowed down before him, showed him great respect. And she said, Jesus, about my boys... How can it be for you if the one of my boys will sit at your right and the one of my boys will sit at your left? You can almost hear the hoi <laughs> not quite. But Jesus said, no, this is not what it is. It's not about power and position here. Remember the shadow of the cross? He said, unless they drink the cup, and it's a cup of suffering, they will not be part of this kingdom. So she was quietened. So we have all these interesting little cameos, don't we? I think scripture comes so alive when you read this because it was real people. It wasn't just sort of a little Bethan pupil writing out scripture verses. These are real characters. And amazingly, they were all changed because of their personal transformation day by day with Jesus. Salome, we read in scripture, was part of the group that stayed with Jesus throughout I love the fact that when the cross is mentioned and there's a cluster, a little band of faithful women at the foot of the cross, Salome is mentioned. I think it's fantastic, actually. This woman, who was such a pushy woman promoting her sons, was there knowing that Jesus was the Lord and she was faithful right to the end. That was Salome. And also, what's so remarkable, she was part of the faithful band that went with the woman to embalm him and went to the tomb. And they were the first to see the stone had been rolled away and the tomb was empty. Salome was there. Isn't that great? She was changed. And John, who was the brother of James, also part of Sons of Thunder and Salome. Isn't it amazing that from Son of Thunder, John became this apostle that so loved Jesus that he was called the apostle of love. And in 1 John, we talked about him before, but in 1 John, just a small book, it's just a letter, love, and versions of that word love, is mentioned over 40 times, just in one little book. He was drenched with the love of God. So these are the brothers. And James, James the Greater. I have such a respect for James the Greater because he is our first James. He was one of the first disciples to follow Jesus and left his nets and followed. Sadly, he was the first disciple to be martyred. We read in Acts chapter 12, verse 2, that James was executed by the sword because Herod gave that command. He was the first to die for his faith. He was truly James the Greater. Let's move on now to James, son of Alphaeus, quite different. He was just a kid, probably a very young teenager. But he is mentioned four times in the New Testament, James the son of Alphaeus. And he's also James the Younger, or James the Minor, or James the Lesser, or James the Little. So he was probably just a youngster. And three times he's mentioned with his mother. 
So I think it's just extraordinary that this youngster joined up with the group that traveled with Jesus. He's always mentioned as part of the 12. And he was there with these big grown men, the strong fishermen, the tax collectors. And he was there throughout, this youngster. To me, what's so moving is when many of these big, strong disciples fled when Jesus was arrested, James stayed at the cross. He didn't run away. And he's mentioned at the cross. And he heard that Roman centurion, and you know the Romans had to worship Caesar as their god. He heard the Roman centurion say, surely this man is the son of God. That's extraordinary for James the kid. So we've looked at James the Greater, son of thunder at Salome, who changed. We've looked at James the Lesser. Let's move on to our third James, who I'd like to spend a bit of time, as time allows. James, the half-brother of Jesus. He's also called James the Just and James the Righteous because of his impeccable life and faith. Wow, I wish they could say that about us. <laughs> However, moving right along... Interestingly, in the Gospel of Mark and of Matthew, we read the names of the brothers of Jesus, the half-brothers, the earthly brothers who grew up in the same household. Of course, their mother was Mary, but their father was Joseph. So Jesus was different, and they must have just seen all through their lives how different this brother was. And they didn't always like it, because we read in Mark and in Matthew that James always mentioned first, probably the oldest, and Joseph and Jude and Simon, the brothers. We never get the sisters' names, which is a bit of a shame. But they went around with um, some of the people who watched Jesus. They were there at the miracle of Cana, where water was turned into wine, the first miracle. And they said, is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary and Joseph? And are these not his brothers and sisters? And we read... They were offended by him. They were really put out by Jesus, these brothers. The Gospel of John doesn't actually give the names of the brothers, but it does talk about the brothers of Jesus. And Cana, this wedding was mentioned, where they turned water, he turned water to wine in John chapter 2. And then in John chapter 7, we read, the brothers did not believe in him. So our James, the half-brother of Jesus, started out by one of those skeptical ones that I was describing at the beginning, on the outskirts with critical eyes. That was our James. But now, look how amazing it is how he changed. And I love to read about the early church fathers. I don't know if you've ever read the books. I mean, there's so many wonderful books to read. But there were some amazing early church fathers. There was one called Polycarp, who lived to his 80s, an amazing man of God. Um, true story. And he was actually then arrested and taken to the Colosseum. And he, was, he died being fed to lions. Um, that was during this awful period of Herod. That was Polycarp. And there was one of his followers, a, a man called Hippolytus, both of them wrote a list of the 70 disciples that were sent out two by two. And interestingly, Hippolytus's works were only discovered in 1834 in a monastery. Isn't that amazing? They were hidden for all these generations and discovered. But what I'm saying is at the head of the list of the 70, in both of them, is James. 
the half-brother of Jesus. So he, by then, was part of the 70. He wasn't the original 12, but he was sent out two by two. So he would have come back rejoicing and saying that in the name of Jesus, we saw demons flee. <laughs> so look how he had changed. So that's James. Then he has written a book in the New Testament called James, and it's a little book sandwiched between Hebrews and First Peter, just a small book, but it is like the Proverbs of the New Testament because it is punchy, it's practical, it's pithy, and it's powerful, and it's like Proverbs. Now, all those Ps, I mean, you have to read it. <laughs> so this is James, and I always think it's quite extraordinary because um, he is such a hard-hitting, direct person, no nonsense, and sometimes people kind of gulp when they read James because he, he doesn't pull any punches. He calls a spade a shovel. But what's amazing, he wrote this letter to the early church because when Peter left Palestine, James took over. And we read in Acts 15 that at the Council of Jerusalem, James, the half-brother of Jesus, was the leader of the early church. He wrote this book, James, as probably the earliest letter in the New Testament because it's very Jewish and that in the early days the church was still very Jewish. They met in synagogues and um, it's impeccable Greek. It's very good Greek. And after the stoning of Stephen, you remember? Saul was there and the, and the clothes were laid at his feet. After the stoning of Stephen, there was a, a scattering of the believers. They fled to Phoenicia to Cyprus and also to Syrian Antioch, where there's a lot of trouble today. But that's where the Christians fled because of the persecution after the stoning of Stephen. And this book is James writing to encourage and to teach the early church. To me, what's quite extraordinary is that the early drawings and stained glass windows of James show this amazing man with a fuller's club in the picture, James the righteous, James the just. And I always thought, well, that's because he calls a spade a shovel. <laughs> He's really hard hitting with his words. But in fact, it's because of a really tragic way that he died. And I'm gonna go through this quickly because I want to get into James in the last minutes we have. The martyrdom of James is recorded in great detail by three different historians of the day. Josephus, who was a Jewish historian, Eusebius, and Jerome. And they write exactly that in the 10th year of Nero, this very wicked man being the emperor, there was a changeover of the high priests and there was a changeover of the governor of, of Judea. And at that same time, Ananus was appointed as the high priest and he was really gunning for the Christians. He wanted to please um, Nero. And he called James, the leader of the church, and said, stand on the wall of the temple. This is written in detail by all of these historians. And they said, you have to stand on the wall of the temple and you have to curse Jesus and have to say that you don't believe in him. And instead, this man of great faith stood on the wall of the temple and he started to preach with power. And the people that were listening were converted. He sadly was thrown off the wall, but the fall didn't kill him. He was then stoned, and he still didn't die. 
So they took a fuller's club, which was used for beating clothes when they washed them. And that's how he was clubbed to death. And that's why he is in the stained glass windows. And I think, you know, we are so used to digital photography and Instagrams and things. But the stained glass windows were, the, in the day, the way of capturing. And I just think it's an extraordinary story, this man. That's our James. James the just. James the righteous. Wow, when you think of the legacy that we have as believers, we have such a cushy time now, don't we? And that's why when we look now at James, and I'd like us to look at the book of James, we have to just smarten up our act. We really do. Basically, the message of James is vital Christianity, good deeds and faith that works. I'll say that again. Vital Christianity Good deeds and faith that works. I think the days are gone when people think of Christians as weak-willed, wishy-washy wimps. Because we're not. We are not weak-willed, we're not wishy-washy, and we're not wimps. Because James is encouraging us to be overcoming. Whenever the trials the persecutions, the testings, we are people known for overcoming. We are victors, not victims. And when you think of the man who wrote this, we have to take this to heart. We all have problems in our lives, areas where we are tested, where we are going through really hard things. But be encouraged to be a victor, not a victim. Let's read quickly from James 1, 12 to 17. I've put this in the Amplified Bible because, to me, the Amplified is almost like quadraphonic sound, cinemascope, and 4D. <laughs> it's all the rich Greek words just packed in. Basically, he's saying, happy, be blessed, happy to be envied is the man who's patient under trial and stands up under temptation. For when he has stood the test and been approved, he will receive the victor's crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted from God, for God is incapable of being tempted by what is evil, and he himself tempts no one. But every person is tempted when he is drawn away, enticed and baited by his own evil desire, lust or passions. Then the evil desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully matured, brings forth death. Do not be misled, my beloved brethren. Every good and every perfect, free, large, full gift is from above. It comes down from the Father of all that gives light, in the shining of whom there can be no variation, rising or setting or shadow, cast by his turning as in an eclipse. What James is saying, don't give in when you get trials and temptations. Don't say God's tempting you because he doesn't tempt. But there is a slippery slope that you have to be careful when you are tempted. What he's saying is the temptation is not a sin. That's not wrong. But it's what you do with that temptation. And we cannot be defeated Christians forever coming back and saying, Lord, here I am again. Please forgive me. I've done this again. We all know which is our battleground. 
don't let that be you. Sin is a pretty hard-hitting word. It actually is an archery term. It means when you're aiming for that bullseye and you hit the mark, you've achieved the best. But if you miss the mark, that's the word sin. You've missed God's best. I'll say that again. Sin is a word in archery means missing the mark. So when you have not hit the bullseye, when you're not living God's best at every level of your life, you've missed the mark, and that's the sin. And just quickly, the slippery slope that James warns about is the temptation comes to all of us. We all have our own battlegrounds. Maybe it's that extra bar of chocolate. Maybe it's that extra glass of wine. Maybe it's the secret cigarette. Maybe it's the movie that you shouldn't be watching. Maybe it's the relationship. Whatever, maybe it's the catty words that just keep coming out. Whatever, you know your battleground. And he says, the temptation comes, stop it then. He says, resist the devil and he will flee. You will never be tempted more than you can bear, but you will always have a way of escape. Look for the exit. Get out of that place of temptation. It might mean move to a different room. Change the conversation, excuse yourself, go to the bathroom. Whatever you do, get away from the place which is going to bring you down. Because what he says is the slippery slope is you think about it, you then imagine it, then you enjoy thinking about it. And he said it gives birth, it's conceived, because you're flirting with that, and down you go. So that's one thing, very, very hard-hitting of James. Secondly, um, he's saying... Blessing, be a blessing. So it's overcoming. This is the hallmark of vital Christianity. Overcoming. Secondly, blessing. Blessing, not cursing. To me, it's extraordinary that God has set out throughout Scripture. Deuteronomy 30, verse 19 says, I set before you life and death. Choose life. And that's what he was saying with with the temptation. Choose life, don't choose death. Well, here again, be a blessing, not a cursing. Proverbs 18.21 says, Life and death, again, the choice, is in the power of the tongue. That's extraordinary. Life and death is in the power of the tongue. And when you read this, this epistle of James, you'll see he really goes about the power of the tongue. What about the words you speak? Are you speaking blessing or are you speaking cursing? So often I hear people say, winter's coming, I'm going to get the flu. I always get the flu when winter comes. I have the jabs, but it doesn't help, I will get the flu. Or they say, I'm studying for exams, but you know what? When exams comes, I go to pieces. It happens every time. I'll never get good results. Or you hear someone say, we're putting in a tender for this job at work. But you know what? We lose every time. It always goes to the opposition. You know people like that. It's bad enough when you're speaking those things about yourself. But have you heard parents talking about children saying to little Johnny, you are an idiot. You will never make anything of your life. You're just like your father. You know, that kind of talk. You moron. I also hear mothers say sometimes, oh, you devil, you little demon. I just urge you, watch what you say, because life and death is 
in the power of the tongue. And if we have lives that are blessings, not cursings, that kind of stuff's not going to be coming out of our mouth. Um, you can read that for yourself because I don't want to be over time. So life and death is in the power of the tongue. And James says the tongue is a little member. You can read it in James 3. And it boasts of great things, but it's like a fire. It can set a whole forest ablaze. So watch your tongue. Watch what you speak. Rather, say what God says about you. You don't have to be unrealistic and say, oh, you're so marvelous. When he's not. That's not it. It's saying, Okay, we didn't do it this time, but we're going to work hard, and let's see next time we'll do it right. We'll win. Be encouraging, be realistic, but rather speak God's words of blessing. And sometimes I've had people start speaking negatively into my life, and I just refuse to accept it. I think, I'm not going to receive that, and I can't be rude, but I just think, Lord, let that just wash over me like water off a duck's back. And I love when I feed the ducks with little ones. You do see the water run off the duck's back. It doesn't go in. And I think, I'm not going to let that affect me. I will not receive that cursing. I'm only going to walk in the blessing of God. I am the apple of his eye. I am the head and not the tail. I am above and not beneath. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Perfect love casts out fear, as we were singing. You will have a scripture for everything, so you counteract that with the Lord's word and speak blessings, not cursing. And then finally, as we close, living. He's saying, live out your faith. Live out your faith. It's works that show the heart of faith. Because faith without works is dead. That's what James said. So it's living out our faith in an abundant life to the full. It's not this mediocre existence in futility. Because we called away from utility into meaning and power. And I just love the, the fact that we can actually have our lives as a letter of God's love to this world that is so confused and mixed up. And if you come across people who say, my faith is a private affair, I'm not going to live it out because, you know, it's just a private thing between me and the man upstairs. Have you heard people <laughs> talk like that? I always say, dearie, it's not the man upstairs. God is everywhere. And when you open your heart to Jesus Christ, he comes and lives with you and in you and for you and by you and along you. And he says, I will never leave you or forsake you. You can't put him in a box up there because it doesn't work. <laughs> it's wonderful. God is alive. His presence is here with us. And as we close, there's a powerful verse in James which said, draw close to God and he will come close to you. James 4 verse 8. So as we close our eyes and just thank him for this time of sharing, thank him for the amazing examples of three Jameses. Could the band come up, please? Just say, Lord, thank you. Thank you for these fine examples of men and also of women who followed you right to death because you are the way, the truth and the life. And my prayer, Lord, is that for those of us who are 
battling with temptations, battling with curses that get put on us by maybe loved ones or close ones, battling with a sense of futility and hopelessness. Oh, Lord, that you would come in and recharge us through your power, that we would be like those little children who skip into your presence and draw close to you to be loved by you. We thank you that you are the truth and that you made a way where there was no way so that we could have this intimate oneness with God himself. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. If you would like prayer, on my right, your left, there is a team of wonderful, loving people who would love to pray with you about your issues and see the victory, not the victim, and see the blessings in your life and see the overcoming. Thank you all. Bless you. Thank you.